A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag. That's not the kind of thoughts I'd like to keep. The harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. You look dandy in the sky. Welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted, as we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's uh, singular 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Dolly's Car, which is track 13, track 7 on side 2 on Trout Mask Replica. This was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, this is an instrumental for guitars only, so the personnel on this track are Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zootorn Rolo on guitar, left channel, and Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, right channel. The length of this track is an epic 1 minute and 26 seconds. Uh, my guest today is a writer, musician, and blogger, Ken Shimamoto. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Joel. It's our pleasure. Um, so, uh, the first, when someone's on the show for the first time, generally my, my first question is, uh, how did you first encounter the music of Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band? And where were you coming from prior to that? What were you, what were you generally listening to before you hit upon Beefheart? Okay. Well, you know, I was introduced to Captain Beefheart, um, when I was in college very briefly for three semesters about 1975 you know, which dates me, uh, you know, prior to that, I was kind of, a uh, an idiot blues rock guitar player, you know, <laughs> and I had a roommate whose band at home played beef heart and Zappa music, you know, I, and everybody in New York in the mid seventies, you know, of a certain mind, you know, seemed to dig Zappa and, you know, not as many of us at the time were into beef heart, but, uh, this, this fellow who was my roommate and bass player and taught me a lot about musical structure rather than just stealing licks off of records, you know, introduced me to, you know, the music of Beefheart. I mean, he very laboriously taught me how to play candy corn. You know, I already had the Spotlight Kid, which I'd gotten, you know, out of a cutout bin for two bucks, which you could do, you know, with a lot of Beefheart records at the time. And he very you know, very slowly and carefully spoon fed me Trout Mask a track at a time. I think I heard Strictly Personal before that or around that because, you know, we, we learned the we learned the long version of Candy Corn off of Mirror Man. But um, but but he introduced me and, and you know, we, we had a mutual interest in things like hobos. <laughs> you know, we were both kind of obsessed with hobos at the time. And, you know, we were listening to Harry Parch, you know, Barstow, you know, the, the highway inscriptions thing and going to the university library to listen to Ornette Coleman and, you know, just kind of discovering free jazz, sticking a toe in there. You know, I'd listened to Zappa before then, you know, initially as comedy music, the way a lot of us were, we would memorize the lyrics from, you know, we're only in it for the money, the way we did Firesign Theater records and Beefheart 
was a little different than that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, with Zappa, a lot of schooled musicians, which I was not, I was and remain a musical literate, but a lot of people, you know, music school type musicians, Doug Zappa, but Beefheart was kind of looked on as, you know, that this is musical chaos and so forth. And then, you know, initially coming out of, of blues rock, I found a lot of things in the earlier records that I could relate to because it was so infused, you know, beef heart oh, sure. music with, with, with country blues early on. But, um, you know, it, it always makes me kind of scratch my head when I read descriptions of Trout Mask as being, you know, an amalgam of blues and free jazz. I mean, you know, writers a lot of times are lazy and they pick easy associations to make. But, you know, while those influences are present, it doesn't really do a good job, in my opinion, of describing what's happening on Trout Mask. You know, I, I, mean, I would Don agree Fleet, with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, Don Van Fleet was kind of a classic American musical eccentric the way Charles Ives was or the way Harry Parch was. But unlike those two, I don't think it was it would have been possible for him to develop without without the existence of rock and roll. You know, I mean, you think about the magic band when they started out in the high desert and they were a popular band. Mm -hmm. You know, they were playing car club parties and things like that and, you know, playing the team fair in L.A. And when the musicians who, who made Trout Mask joined the band, that's what they thought they were going to be doing. You know, little did they know. But, you know, the, the, the things I picked up on initially, I mean, you know, Spotlight Kid record, of course, you had the Alice in Blunderland guitar solo, which, mm -hmm. it, which it took me 45 years to figure out, you know, what Wingdale Fingerling was doing there. And, um, you know, so, so that was a way in. But with Trout Mask, I mean, we think of it, well, we think of it a lot of different ways, but it's not this big monolith. There's a lot of different strains and streams working there just in terms of the material. And also, if you think about the way different musicians who came through the ranks of the magic band kind of affected the way they sounded, you know, and at the at the outset of this material, when it's first being developed, and you know, when Moonlight on Vermont and Veterans Day Poppy are being recorded, you're, you're kind of in transition from the band, you know, the original blues band and the band that made Strictly Personal to something else. You know, you had you had Gary Marker playing on those couple of tracks, who was a fill in after the original bass player left. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the reasons why Dolly's car came about the way it did, you know, as as a duet for two guitars is they were kind of between guitar players because Jerry Handley hadn't quite left yet, but his commitment was kind of flagging. And, you know, Marker filled in for those couple of sessions. And Don had just started writing using the piano, you know, to compose and having John French transcribe the things that, that he wrote. And, you know, you listen to you listen to Dolly's car and there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces on the album that are dissonant because you have lines that he wrote in different keys and they're kind of colliding when they're played simultaneously. And there's a lot of things that are tonal, 
There's a lot of things that have very much in common with the material and strictly personal, you know, not just the first couple of things that were written, but throughout the process. But Dolly's car, I think its intention from the outset was to be a study in dissonance. Yeah, I think that Van Vliet used that exact phrase. I know French mentions that in his book that that Don called it a, a would later call this a study in dissonance, and that it is either this or still softly through snow, where the first yes. one of those two is one of the first tracks that that Van Vliet wrote on the piano uh, for the album. It certainly it this feels like it could easily have been the first track that he wrote on the piano because it does have the the quality of um you know it's it's a smaller piece in many respects than the other things on the album it's it's uh seems of a piece in a way where the others may have been kind of cobbled together from various tapes um i was pleased to hear you mention harry parch i've i've brought him up a couple of times on this podcast and i've always seen felt like there was a strong affinity between uh van vliet and and parch in their in their shared um image image bank that they would use of of hobos and and railroads and uh kind of old weird america and also just in their uh sheer uh sheer stubbornness in terms of creating an entirely new musical vocabulary in parch's case going to the you know developing his own tuning system and his his own instruments and yet i haven't ever read much that has has uh aligned those two figures you know i'm not sure whether or not don was aware of parch you know prior to you know composing trout mask i mean i know you know parch was also in california but you know mm. it's, it, it's a big state there's a lot of stuff his instruments were actually in Illinois, the University of Illinois, I think by the mid sixties, you know, but, but Parch, I mean, you know, he, he devised this 43 tone system and he designed and built all these beautiful instruments basically from garbage. So, you know, like Don, he had the sensibility of a visual artist. You know, he, he said he was a philosophical music man seduced into carpentry because he had to create <laughs> instruments that, that would that, that would use that 43 tone scale but his intent in devising that was actually to create music that had all the tonal possibilities of the human voice because he was harking back to ancient greek drama which from what we know of it was sung or declaimed you know mm -hmm. and, and and the instruments that they used were not you know tempered instruments like we had, you know, in Western music since, you know, the, the 16th century or whatever. But, you know, and, and also having the sensibility of, you know, uh, a vagabond, you know, I mean, Parch actually hoboed around the country, you know, mm. in the 30s. And, and his early work in you know, a U.S. highball and things like that reflected that experience. And that's not something Don did but you listen to something like, you know, the dust blows forward, you know, the recitation he does there or the song Hobo Changba. And that was definitely, you know, um, a style of living that he thought about, certainly. Yeah. French states that that Van Vliet would actually go and hang out with with hobos in, in and around Lancaster in the late 50s and early 60s. There's always an element of tall tales when it comes to 
things that Van Vliet would say about his life, but yes. it, it's it's certainly possible that he spent some time with those guys, and and it was definitely a a rich source of of image and metaphor throughout his his musical career. You know, train that the number of train songs in in Beefheart's repertoire is is larger than perhaps your average avant garde rock artist. Um, <laughs> yes. So you mentioned going to college in New York. Are you from New York originally? Yeah, I grew up on Long Island, you know, South Shore, Long Island, Bellport, Mm -hmm. you know, and I went to SUNY Albany, you know, for three semesters. I moved to Texas in 78 and, you know, it's been home ever since. You can tell by my my Southern drawl. (laughs) Where where are you located? I'm in California. Okay. I'm in San Diego. I mean, after reading the Harker Road in French books, I have to say I had a hard time listening to the album for a couple of years, just hearing the descriptions of some of the the manipulations and the, the weird interpersonal dynamics that went on in that house during the making of this record. Yep. Yeah, I know and someone who look- refuses to listen to it precisely wow. for that reason, because of the, the trauma that those guys went through. Yeah, and, and you, you can definitely see, you know, the voluminous writing that John French has done since the Revenant box set is in part, I think, an effort to process his trauma. You know, like I recently listened to a podcast he did with, you know, it's some drum podcast, but but he's talking about the making of the record. And he recounts one incident, which he's written about as well, where basically, you know, Don had the rest of the band beat him up, you know, and he had, and this was after the first time they'd heard the lyrics to My Human Gets Me Blues. And I'm thinking, my God, that's a song that they played live countless times, you know, with the magic band after they after they reformed in the aughts. And it's like, how can he how can he still play that music when it carries that association? You know, but I think, you know, to, you know, reading reading the the account in, in John French's book of how Dolly's car was composed, I think gives an insight into why somebody would have stuck around, you know, for all of that, all of that business, because, you know, he talks about how, you know, th- they had, had a book of, of Dolly's art and his writings that Don would read to or have read to them, you know, and then there was an exhibit at a museum in L.A. that they all went to. And that's where they Mm -hmm. saw the car, you know, which gives the piece its title. And it's kind of a, you know, it's it's this this vehicle that's sitting in a pan. There's water running over it and it's kind of decaying. You know, there's snails and there's plants growing out of it. And it's kind of, you know, an artificial creation of man that is being reclaimed by nature you know, which is an image that goes along with a lot of Don's ecological concerns that first manifest themselves in this album and really come to the fore on Lick My Decals Off. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know, French talks about how it, you know, it, it conjured up memories for him of, of, you know, experiences he'd had when he was a child. And just the idea that what they were doing musically was a parallel to what Dolly was doing with his visual art. You know, it inspired him to want to work on his drumming. Realize, you know, these guys, and, and I am one who, you know, back in the day when I was first exposed to Beefheart, I had read the Langdon Winter pieces in Rolling Stone that mm. 
paint this picture of Don as, as this, this sort of cuddly surrealist, you know, but they don't talk to anybody else. Winner never interviewed anybody else in the band for publication. So when the Harker Road and French books hit, it's like, oh my gosh, this was a, a completely different environment than the one I had imagined. And, you know, in later interviews, Don talked about having used a kind whip, you right. know, on the musicians to get them to do that. But in terms of the trauma, um, Robin Hitchcock refers to members of the band as Beefheart survivors. And um, I, I was talking actually with with Eric Clerks, who uh, joined the Reunited Magic Band when when Gary Lucas left. Um, yes, and uh, his his feeling was that that yeah the this um, the playing you know going out with this music and playing this music in a way that is a joyful experience and one in which you know aud- rapturous audiences would be ex- you know extremely excited to to hear the Magic Band was a kind of a way of them reclaiming that experience into something that is is you know positive for them rather than the the kind of uh you know have, having to live with this memory of this kind of cult-like uh, environment yes. that they were in and from um jeff cotton's interview with uh, samuel andreev it sounded like he he particularly needed a lot of like time and therapy and assistance oh, yeah. in getting over the the kinds of the miserable experience that he had in in producing this album because i mean you know john french wound up getting thrown down a flight of stairs when he was no longer needed but but jeff cotton had his ribs broken mm-hmm. you know i i mean it, it's it, it's incredible to me that someone would have put up with that for that amount of time but then you think about it you go back these were young guys number one you know who were all at least initially pretty happy to have been accepted into the Beefheart band, which was, which was like the local hot band that everybody revered, that everybody wanted to be. So, so they're on fire with music anyway. And, and, you know, they get there and they think, Hmm, where are the blues songs? I thought we were going to be playing safe as milk, but they rose to the challenge and they figured out how to make this work, whether it meant using open tunings or, playing really heavy strings with metal finger picks, which is not something, you know, people conventionally do, you know, at least, you know, in rock music, the music that these guys would have been playing, but, but they figured it out, whatever it took, they figured it out. And, and, you know, again, French's remarks about Dolly's car, just the, the experience of, viewing the art that that they'd all been studying and being able to relate that to what they were doing they i mean they were in uncharted territory nobody nobody certainly you know in in 1969 was playing anything like this music one could argue that nobody really is doing anything like it today i mean you know there's influences all manner of kind of repercussions of it but but, but it remains a very unique and singular piece of work. Yeah, that moment of enlightenment, it, it seems to be that that is another constant of the, the people that I've talked to on this show. The, oh, they actually mean it to sound like that. And it's it is something that has been constructed and is replicable is is uh, always eye opening for for Beefheart listeners. That was the um, the Shiny Beast band that, that yes. you're referring to. Yeah, that's um, uh 
a formidable group of musicians. No, no, and in this music, I mean, the sound of surprise is always present. You know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with David Huron. I'm not. Uh, you know, he, he's a he's a professor of music, and, he, and he's done a lot of study about the kind of neurology behind why people respond to music the way that they do. And a big part of that, he talks about anticipation, you know, based on a number of things, based on your kind of cultural background, your familiarity with a genre of music, a style of music, your familiarity with a particular piece of music, you know, all these things create expectations. And when a composer or a performer wants to, you know, create a different kind of response, whether it's, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, the hair standing up on the back of your neck or mm -hmm. fear or, you know, or joy or something else, they'll do something that kind of plays with those expectations, you know, and, and, and that's always present in Beefheart, I think, to the extent that, you know, people familiar with Western music or rock music of the time, you know, there were, th there were trappings about it that were familiar. The instrumentation is familiar or, you know, the basis in a certain style, but, but they always throw you a curveball. You know, there's, there's always something a, a little odd, even in the earliest stuff, you know, in, in, in safe as milk, for example, you know, like in, in the middle of, Oh, you know, Dropout Boogie, which is basically, you know, a garage rock song. And they throw this little bit of Spanish guitar in the middle. It's like, what the hell? Where did that come from? You know, or, or, or when it blows, it stacks. You know, you have this deep, gutty kind of swamp blues groove. And then you have this, this marimba weirdness, you know, for a couple <laughs> of bars in the middle of it. And he's always, he's always kind of playing with your expectations in that way. And then... You know, when you have Trout Mask, you know, and Trout Mask and arguably decals, they go a little bit further because there are longer melodic lines present. You know, just like on a couple of pieces on the original Batchain Puller album, you've got even longer melodic strings, you know, that are happening. But, um, but no, just, just the fact that there are so many changes in some of the pieces that come so quickly and unexpectedly based on what you've heard before or everything else that you've heard, even if you've heard Trout Mask a number of times, you know, that sound of surprise is always present. No, yeah, especially when you're you're hearing a part that is isolated that you've yeah. previously only heard in the context of, of the tune and you, you suddenly realize the intricacies in it that are, you know, are kind of buried in you know in its collision with the other instruments or because of van vliet's voice being mixed on the tracks that weren't aren't instrumental obviously being mixed so uh, immensely high particularly on this album that it occasionally obliterates yes uh, the sound the the actual sound of the music uh that that's very it's it has been interesting in this this project that i've been doing and and talking to different people of different age ranges ranges about um about Beefheart and how they were introduced to it and how the associations that they have with it and that we do now have this, this uh, the technological possibilities of if you search, uh, and I, I believe you, you pointed this out, um, I think in your, in your blog, uh, that if you search for Beefheart on, on YouTube, there's many different people doing versions, you know, 
guitar covers of of his his different pieces and so you have different people around the world who who love this music and are you know continuing to try and learn it and pass it on in that same kind of game of telephone way of of that he that in many ways he initially presented this music to the band that it was not a written scored thing that it was him banging on the piano and it then essentially yelling at them until they played it the way he wanted to hear it. <laughs> you know, banging on the piano or whistling or playing, you know, notes on a saxophone or, you know, kind of by any means necessary. And you look at the, you look at the, um, the weird interpersonal dynamic there. And, you know, part of it, I think was Don's reaction to, to having been the least musically trained guy in any band he was ever in. Mm-hmm. You know, and and having to take, you know, much much abuse from the other musicians for that, or, or or feeling disrespected, and so when he replaced gradually one by one the original musicians in the Magic Band, it was all with younger guys who were a little bit in awe of him, perhaps, and and were were, were less were less likely to crack back. I always think it's interesting that that Ingber was the only guitarist in the in the Magic Band who was ever given the the um the special gift of an extended solo you mentioned the Alice in Blunderland solo earlier which I have to say I'm impressed as hell you were able to figure out I've I couldn't uh, I've mentioned on a few episodes of the show I scratch around on guitar and bass I wouldn't call myself a musician but uh, I think I'd break every finger on my left hand if I tried to figure out how to play that Um, it it only took me 45 years you know but I'm I'm impressed. I I don't think I think given 45 years and nothing else to do, I still couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, it, it I've always wondered what it was about Ingber that that Don gave him that that entrance. Whereas you know Harkle Road or Cotton certainly could have taken an extended solo. They're both phenomenal guitarists, but they were never given the they were never let off the leash to do that. And, and, and again, I, you know, I suspect it was just the fact that they were younger and they were easier for him to manipulate. I mean, Ingber, not only did he play that solo, which, you know, famously, you know, in the studio was about 15 minutes long. They cut it down to three minutes for the record. And then he always played it the same way, which he never played anything the same way twice. That was one of his things. He always had a hard time, you know, copping the licks, as he said, learning the parts, mm-hmm. you know, to the Beefheart music. But not only that, but you know, he was given leeway to present compositional ideas like, you know, the 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 song I'm going to booglerize you, baby, is basically a jam idea that he came up with. It, it is so unusual for Van Vliet to give anyone in the band that degree of, of equal footing. And and on the on this track, Dolly's Car, it's it's unusual for for Van Vliet, who, you know, would rarely accept that he had any influences or would admit to having been, you know, having his head turned in any particular direction by someone is very explicitly uh, evoking and um, uh, evoking another artist, that this is the yes. only track named after another painter or, or musician, that he's that he's explicitly tipping his cap to, to Salvador Dali. And the, I mean, all of the the band, but particularly French, speak very um, in, in kind of hushed tones about this trip that they took to the LA County Museum to see the Dali exhibit and the the effect that seeing that work in person had on them. And the car that you mentioned that that gives this song its title, um, being this uh, 
piece of work that that French still till, still talks about with with a great deal of of uh, of awe and and speaks of it as this inspiring experience that it, it pushed him to another level as a musician that he wanted to be a great drummer in the way that Dolly was a great painter. Yes, and you know perhaps the fact that he was using a different medium gave Don the license to pay homage to Dolly in this way. I mean, you look at his own visual art and there's very little that, that I, I could say I see as being inspired by Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. But, you know, perhaps, you know, it, it's in a way of thinking about creation, you know, or again, the idea that, that, that there are no limits where the limits are the ones that you create yourself, you know, but, but I, you know, Besides the besides the trip to to the museum, you know, French also talks about the night that this piece was written, and it was a relatively calm and peaceful time, you know, in the Trout House. You know, they had they had candles going, and you know, the other band members were asleep, and Don just says, "Hey, let's write something," you know, and he sits down and he does this, and you know, again. That there were a few instances, you know, this, you know, Peon is another great one, you know, One Red Rose, where, where Don would, would would focus on a couple of instruments or just one instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is where a lot of times his most lyrical statements were made, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, uh, Peon and One Red Rose and uh, on the later albums, like... A uh, carrot is as close as a rabbit gets to a diamond, or Flavorbud Living, or are, are yes. absolutely you know these gorgeous, delicate pieces. Even Flavorbud Living played as as intensely as it is by Lucas on on the Doctor Station. Theory yeah, the exploding. See, I note, always yeah. preferred the religious version myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. French is uh, it, it is French playing that, isn't is it not yes, on the original Bat Chain Pillar? Which yes, just astonishes me that French as 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 phenomenal a drummer as he is, is, is also a, a quite capable guitarist. That that's a guy who, who has an enormous amount of musical skill. Yeah. I mean, you know, at least, you know, being on the West coast, you have a, you have a better chance of, of seeing these people than we do, you know, in the middle of the country. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, or like, you know, may, maybe a year before COVID, uh, you know, Peter Bronsman played in Dallas. I mean, he's been in Texas a bunch of times, you know, for about 20 years, he's played Houston and Austin because there are arts organizations that support mm-hmm. that. And he played in Dallas at a bookstore, you know, oh, wow. and I was there and 120 people showed up and I said, yes, there's an audience for this, you know, hope he comes back. But, you know, but now we are where we are. So, so it's hard to tell, you know, when, when we're going to get a chance to see Oh, absolutely. I, I was, we were exchanging emails prior to this, um, this conversation. And I, I guess before I get too far into this, I should mention that, um, I should ask about your, your interest as well in the Stooges, um, in the, on your YouTube channel, you're, you are playing with a, uh, is it a, was it a one-time only or are you, were you guys a, a regular Stooges, uh, cover group? It was, it was a joke that got oh. way out of control. We were only going <laughs> to play one show. We were going to play Funhouse once. And, you know, I made the joke at the bar to the guy who, who's the singer in the band, you know, Ray Liberio. And Matt Hembry, the bass player, was there. He said, I'd like to do that. And John Teague, the drummer, who's also in Pinkish Black, who you might have heard of, 
that I'd like to do that. And we, we, we had a, we had a real nice run for about 12 years, you know, and I called it down earlier this year because John moved to Albuquerque. Oh, okay. You know, but pinkish black is still going to be functioning, but no, we actually had, we actually had, you know, a little following of sorts and we, we kind of expanded the parameters, you know, beyond the stooges to, you know, anybody that was in from the velvets, to the voidoids, you know, like the eighties was like the cutoff point, but, okay. Uh, you know, and for a long time, my, my main interest was keeping those guys wanting to do it. You know, it's like, whatever I have to do to keep you guys doing it. Exactly. It's these frozen moments in time that we were lucky enough to have some recorded evidence of. I, I think with with the Stooges and, and Beefheart as well, there's still, like you say, you're still hearing it like you did when you were a teenager. The Those albums still feel so immensely fresh. Uh, I was talking Absolutely. to uh, Eric Goodis, and and he he mentioned um, Miles Davis's "On the Corner" uh, in in comparison to to Trout Mask, and just that in a way they still feel ahead of their time, even though we're now yes. you know fifty plus years on from from Trout Mask. I I honestly don't know when "On the Corner" came out. I'm I'm guessing seventy three. So 73. close. Yeah, I, and I mean they still feel you put them on, and they still feel so immensely fresh and relevant and and exciting as does funhouse it you know the it it still it still uh writhes with the energy of the greatest rock album greatest garage rock album ever ever recorded yes it, it it's I, I think of it as teenage hoodlums trying to cop james brown and john coltrane with varying degrees of success but it is the undiluted essence of rock and roll to me. And Trout Mask is a lot of things. I mean, you have the spoken word pieces, and that's one thing. You know, you have the pieces that are kind of of a piece with the strictly personal material. You know, it, it's, it's, it's psychedelic rock, but so far beyond what anybody else was even thinking about doing in 69, when that was kind of over, you know, and heavy was coming in. And, and then you have the pieces you know with the the multiple colliding keys and time signatures and how on earth did they do that and that and that is the stuff that people would be listening to you know if if there's anything left to listen to it on you know a hundred years from now and and marveling and saying my god what a piece of work what a piece of art absolutely Uh, yeah it's it's still it's still this kind of mind-boggling, uh, you know, you really cannot, you understand the amount of effort that they put into it and how phenomenally tight they were and the, you know, they rehearsed this stuff for 16-hour days over a space of months and months and were able to play it, you know, basically record the entire album in the space of one one day in a studio with Van Vliet coming six in. Hours. And, yeah, six, six hours. Six hours for 21 songs. Yep. <laughs> And it's still just, it's, I, I come to this, every time I'm recording one of these episodes, I come to this, like, um, it's like I'm ch- taking a little tiny chips off of a pyramid. Like, this is just something so massive and, and uh, difficult to comprehend that I'm just kind of throwing words at it, hoping that, hoping that it'll pin down just a ti- the tiniest little fragment of what makes this such a, a, a mind, mind-boggling and phenomenal piece of art. Yeah, I mean, not every double LP 
rewards this kind of listening and analysis, but Trout Mask certainly does. I would say that most of them don't. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's relatively few double albums where I, I've I haven't thought, eh, you probably could have done without that track. I mean, yeah, yeah we're all we're all great editors, you know, in our mind of, of, it, of these things. But but with Trout Mask, I, I mean, I really can't do that. I really can't do that. And you know, I have I have pieces that I like to hear more than others, but there's nothing that that I, I think would improve the totality of it if it wasn't there, if that makes any sense. No, I absolutely get that. And at the end of each each episode, um, when when Darren is hosting the show, he rates a track five out of five. And I say on every one of these, every track of, on this is five out of five for me because it's 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 not that I love them all equally. There are certainly ones that I prefer to others, but they are all part of this whole that is incomparable to anything else. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I can't make the same statement for every Beefheart LP, but for this, absolutely. You know, oh yeah, I would agree with that. Five out of five. Um, I when I was uh, introduced to you, um, I was told that you were affiliated in some way with a documentary that had been produced about the MC Five. Would you be willing to talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, I, I can't, I can't speak very much about it. Um, I was in communication with David Thomas, you know, one of the filmmakers. Um, now I haven't been in touch with him and Laurel for several years, you know, since all the lawsuits and that, and I don't want to say anything that's going to cause problems for them. But at one point he asked me to move to Chicago and help them make the film. And, you know, I, I was not able to do that because, well, you know, I, I needed to, to have a, a steady income to make my child support. But I was a huge I was a huge MC5 fan again, going back to to, you know, when I was 12 years old, mm-hmm. you know, which was weird in New York. You know, I got to tell you, but it was just such a fascinating story that encapsulated so much of America in that historical moment you know, that I felt like it had a lot of resonance besides just being a good rock and roll story. And and I think they did a very credible job of it. I only wish that the film were more generally available. I guess it's, it's been on YouTube intermittently. I I can't stand watching movies on YouTube. Sure. I get you. But, um, no, no, I, I I mean, I, I, I think it's a big story in the way, you know, the MC5 story was a big story because it took in a lot of other aspects and elements of America in its moment, you know, the politics of it and, you know, the kind of social ferment that was taking place. The Stooges story is a little story. It's a bunch of guys who grew up together playing music, mm. you know, which is a great story. I mean, I've written that story hundreds of times, you know, but it, but it's a particularly resonant one. You know, and at this point in time, you know, Iggy owns the Stooges story and Wayne Kramer owns the MC5 story. Thankfully, they're both really good storytellers. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I, you know, I, I'm just sorry that the, the true testimonial folks, after having invested as much time in their lives in making that film as the guys in the band did, being in the band, you know, actually more than that, that uh, they were not able to get some kind of reward out of that. 
That is a shame. I I have to ask, and this is just kind of this is off topic, but is was the David Thomas who worked on the film? Is he any relation to the David Thomas who's the lead singer of the group Peribu? No. Okay. No. I was just totally curious. I was just curious because I know that Thomas uh, of Ubu is also a gigantic MC5. No, no, yeah. no Dave and Laurel, you know, are, are Chicago, Chicago people. You know, um, you know, I don't know a lot about their background prior to the film. All we ever talked about was the MC5 and the Fair kind enough. of world that existed around that. I mean, you know, uh, Perubu, I mean, was certainly, I mean, that that whole kind of galaxy of, Northern Ohio bands that emerged in the late seventies were very much influenced by both the Detroit, you know, avant rock thing and by Beefheart as well, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I got into Beefheart led me to Perubu because someone, I can't even remember where I, I read that uh, there was an influence. And now at this point with a gun to my head told that I had to pick a favorite band, I would say that Perubu is my all time favorite band. Interesting, um, and uh, and yeah, and 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 I partially asked about the Stooges and the MC5 pr- purely because I am from Michigan, and so I feel a slight bit of hometown pride that these two phenomenal bands both both sprang from my home state, even though I no longer no longer call it home. Yeah, one of the one of the great moments of my life was you know in two thousand two, right before I got fired from the job I had at the time. You know, I, I'd been doing fanzine stuff and webzine stuff. And I had to make a go of it as a freelance journo, which meant that I was covering local music. And I kind of got, mm-hmm. I kind of lost the thread of a lot of things at the time. But immediately before that, I went up to Cleveland to see Scott Morgan's powertrain with a, a buddy of mine, you know, from Philadelphia. And then we drove up to Ann Arbor with the drummer from powertrain, Andy Frost, who's now deceased, you know, but uh, he was an Ann Arbor kid and he gave us, the Ann Arbor rock and roll tour. Ah, there's Pioneer High School. You know, that's where the Rationals went. There's the MC5 house. There's the Up House. There's the Scott Ashton Memorial Bridge. And there's Ron Ashton crossing the street to the blind pig with his guitar. Oh, my God. You know, it, was quite, it was quite inspiring, you know, being there because that music was so meaningful to me when I was young coming up. I mean, you know, my initial fascination with music was as a locus of community because I was so alienated growing mm-hmm. up on Long Island. <laughs> I did, you know, and, and the whole Michigan rock and roll, you know, trans love energies, white Panther thing was very, was very appealing to, to, to my, you know, 13 year old mind. Absolutely. Uh, so I think that that is probably going to wrap it up for Dolly's car. Um, the uh, As we were discussing earlier, um, Darren usually rates the track. It sounds like we're both going to go for five out of five, just on, again on the basis of um, it's this is an incomparable uh, experience. Uh, Mr. Shimamoto, if you have anything else you'd like to say about the track, if you have anything you want to plug, promote, signal boost, uh, the floor is yours. I, you know, you took me by surprise, Joel. A- actually, nothing. Uh, just, you know, stashdauberblogspot.com. And uh, I've got a YouTube channel with my, with my name on it that's got some of the bands that I was in. And also some of your, uh, there are some videos of you working on Beefheart material on there as well. So if, if anyone is, anyone listening to this um, wants to check out some guitar, uh, some 
some uh, guitar interpretations of the music from this and from other Beefheart albums. There's some fantastic stuff on there. So I will make sure that the uh, your blog and your YouTube channel are both included in the information for this episode. Uh, if awesome. you want, if you want to follow track by track on Twitter, it is at underscore track by track. If you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B as in boy, A-K-K-E-R. Uh, Mr. Shimamoto, thank you again so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Joel. I enjoyed this very much. And thank you for listening. <laughs>